Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. As you probably figured out by now, John's Gospel is one of my favorite books ever written of all time. I love all scripture, of course, but it just gets me really excited. It was a, a great joy to start that in our Bible class this morning, the big sweeping overview of John's Gospel. And this particular text is a favorite of mine because not only does it give you John's rationale behind writing all of this, or God's rationale, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. But he also redeems a figure that I think has gotten a very unfair nickname over the years. Doubting Thomas, right? You know, I'm kind of sick of hearing him called Doubting Thomas, or other people called Doubting Thomases. And it gets me fired up, the chance to vindicate poor Thomas. Thomas is the only one of the twelve, and really the only person in the Bible, to end up with this permanent derogatory nickname. Doubting Thomas, really? What about ear-chopping Peter? <laughs> Denying Peter. Betraying Judas. Adulterous David. Persecuting Paul, or my favorite, ran away butt naked Mark. Right? In the Gospel of Mark, they try to grab this young man that's definitely him, I think, and he runs away and they're left holding his clothes. He doesn't get a bad nickname. Why Thomas? And besides, this nickname's not even accurate. Thomas doubted, sure, but he did not remain in his doubt. In fact, when Thomas finally does get to see Jesus, as the rest of them had already done, he gives one of the greatest confessions of faith that anyone could possibly give. My Lord and my God. That is not the faith of a doubter. That's the faith of a believer. If anything, we could call him empirical Thomas or verifying Thomas. And if Thomas had been an American, we could have called him Missourian Thomas. Because Missouri is, after all, the show-me state. Show me. He saw the pages of all four Gospels are filled with examples of sinners, saints, who confess Jesus and yet also mess up, just like you and I. It's a fact of life. Lutherans historically have described this situation that we're all in as simul justus et peccator. In other words, at the same time, sinful and righteous. Righteous and sinful. 100% both. Because God has declared us to be righteous on account of Christ. But until Christ returns or we depart this life in rest, we are at the same time 100% sinful. So please, dear friends, give poor St. Thomas a break. None of us naturally have faith apart from God, the Holy Spirit, granting it to us. Thomas simply had not yet received it. Right? He wasn't there when Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit on the 11, the 10, I guess. He's a sinner saint, just like you, just like me, but also like you and me, a saint who made a confession of faith that is worth repeating until Jesus returns. My Lord and my God, this is the message of Easter. Christ is risen from the dead, hallelujah. So Thomas response shows us that there are really only two possible responses to the news of Easter. 
Either you believe it and you live accordingly, or you don't. It's pretty straightforward stuff. To say that Jesus is both Lord and God says a mouthful. Everything that we attribute to God applies to Jesus. What is our response to God? Trust Him. Fear, love, and trust Him above all things. And it is amazing how easily we try to weasel our way out of that one. It seems so straightforward to us Christians, but in a culture that is constantly talking about a God in a very generic way, this statement means a lot. It means taking the word of Jesus as God's word, which it obviously is. That's how John begins his gospel. It means that we are, when we are in need of anything, we look to Jesus. And what's great is that this beautiful statue that you have in here is drawn from John 20, the reading that we just read. Look at them. That's the hand of, hands of blessing. What do you think Jesus is saying right there? Peace be with you. Those nail-pierced hands granting peace. When we need anything, we look to Jesus. We fear, love, and trust him as our God above all things. Who else can save us? Earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus said some things about eating his body and drinking his blood that made a lot of people really uncomfortable. John even notes that a whole bunch of people who had previously been following him stopped following him at that point. And so Jesus asked the twelve, do you want to go away also? And Peter responds on behalf of the group because he seems to be very quick to speak. But it's classic. Where should we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. There is no one besides Jesus who can save us, who can make us new, who can take our sin and our brokenness and our grief and our despair and shame and exchange all of it in exchange for his righteousness. To say that Jesus is our Lord has to do with the way that we relate to him. What is the role of Jesus in our everyday lives? What is our relationship to him? And we have a little bit harder time with this one in our modern Western American Republic because we don't have lords otherwise. Simply put, Jesus is our Lord, our ruler, our sovereign, our king, who rules and reigns over us. And as the Catechism says, our Lord who has redeemed us, bought us back, who has redeemed us lost and condemned people, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood, his innocent suffering and death on the cross, so that we may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting innocence, righteousness, and blessedness, just as he is risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity. That's a great answer for that. Who is Jesus? He's our Lord, who's done all of this so that we would live with him in his kingdom forever. To have Jesus as Lord means that we have been brought under his gracious rule and reign. The kingdom of God, the kingly rule and reign of God has now come to us in Jesus Christ. 
There is no one who can take us away from him. You see, we are bought and paid for. We are now his prized possessions. To say that Jesus is Lord is to recognize that he is in charge above everyone else. What does it look like to live under Jesus as Lord? And there's a lot of answers that we could give to that, but there are a few things that come to mind in our text for this morning. First, the peace. He stands in their midst, even when they are scared silly, and he offers them peace. And this is a big deal. And what did they deserve to hear on that first Easter evening? What do you think they expected to hear? Probably not peace to you. What in the world is the matter with you? Probably would have been a better, more deserving, likely response. You're in it now would be a fitting word from Jesus, but certainly not peace. And that demonstrates just what the peace of Easter is all about. It's not something that we deserve either, that's for sure. It's not something that we could even have possibly expected. But it is exactly what Jesus came to bring. Peace. Irene in the New Testament. Shalom in the Old Testament. In other words, the restoration of how God had intended things to be between him and his people at the original creation. Peace is the restoration of what had been broken by Adam's disobedience. Peace to you. And he tells them this twice that first Easter. And John notes this here. Then, meaning at that point, the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Meaning they weren't glad before that. <laughs> right? They weren't glad before that. Seeing Jesus show up in your locked upstairs room wouldn't be a very gladsome thing if you're expecting to get what you deserve for denying and abandoning him in his darkest hour. The next thing that we notice about life in Christ's kingdom is the sending. In the same way that the Father has sent me, says Jesus, I also am sending you. They would be sent out into the world. Jesus says in the same way that the Father had sent him into the world. You see, Easter Sunday was just the beginning. While all four Gospels all end shortly after the events of Easter, that is really only the beginning of Jesus' kingly rule and reign. Now, from now on, Jesus would be at work reigning through everyone that he's sending out into the world. Now, Jesus would be at work everywhere his messengers are present, eventually covering the face of this entire planet with this gospel proclamation. He tells them that he's sending them out right after showing them his scars. Now, first of all, they recognize in these scars that it truly is him. But I also can't help but wonder if he wasn't also showing them that they too would suffer for the sake of his kingdom. The next thing that we notice about kingdom life in this passage is receiving we graciously receive from the Lord's hand. And without it, we are totally helpless. Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And this is huge. Obviously, there are huge connections between this 
day here, Easter evening, and also the day of Pentecost, when then the Holy Spirit would be poured out on the entire church. But here, on the evening of the first Easter, Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit onto the ten gathered there. It would be this Holy Spirit that would give them faith to trust and to believe and to understand what had happened in his passion, his death, and his resurrection. It would be the Holy Spirit who would bring all things to their remembrance, everything that he taught them and everything that he'd done, just as he had promised them what, in what likely was the very same room just that Thursday evening. He told them, when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, he will bring to remembrance all that I've said and done. It would be the Holy Spirit that would proclaim the message of Jesus through them in the days and the years ahead. The Holy Spirit is who would restore them. What is going on with this thing? Holy, the devil does not like preaching. And the devil is always in the technology. To err is human. To really, really mess something up, you need electronics. <laughs> the Holy Spirit would restore to them the breath of life, which had been lost by Adam so many years ago. The words Jesus speaks here directly echo the creation of Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and then the man became a living creature. Jesus is the re-genesis of the world, the re-creator of humanity. And isn't it kind of interesting the way that all of this plays out in the life of Jesus just like the book of Genesis? If you were at Bible class this morning, you heard me say this concept of intertextuality. John is built, John's gospel is built on everything that happened in the Old Testament, beginning with Genesis and Exodus. On the first day of the week, what we call Palm Sunday, the Lord begins his work of re-creation. In Genesis, Adam was created on the sixth day. On the sixth day of Jesus' re-Genesis week, Adam's death is undone, and a new humanity is born there from Jesus' pierced side. On the seventh day, the Lord God rested from all the work that he had done. And on the seventh day, the Lord God, Jesus Christ, rested in the tomb. And now, to finish it all off, the risen Jesus once again breathes the breath of life into the new humanity right there in the upper room. Now, if that doesn't give you goosebumps, I don't know what will. To receive the Holy Spirit for us is to become truly alive. To be truly alive as God intended us to be a living creature. And prior to this, we were, to paraphrase St. Paul and a popular TV show, The Walking Dead. One of the greatest things that we see about the church receiving the new breath of life in the person of the Holy Spirit is that this life is contagious. These men were to bring this message and this life with them wherever they went. 
They would proclaim the news about Jesus and what this news means for all of humanity. It means your sins are forgiven. Death is defeated. Eternal life is yours. Why do you think these two things are connected in this passage here? The Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. In one sentence, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. That's what I found. Stop it, Siri. The Holy Spirit comes by the preaching of this good news. The apostolic witness to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The new genesis of all creation in Christ. And wherever the Holy Spirit creates faith in Christ, it's right there that sins are forgiven. Wherever sins are forgiven, there is indeed eternal life. Under this lordship of Jesus, as citizens of the kingdom of God, you have received all of these things. Because Jesus has sent people to preach this good news to you, the Holy Spirit has created faith in you, has forgiven you all of your sins, has granted to you everlasting life, new life, that it truly is truly life the way God intended it. And that life has recreated you as God intended for humanity. Not only have you received these things, the good news, the forgiveness of sins by the Holy Spirit, you too have been sent to bear witness to them wherever life takes you. As the Father has sent Jesus, so Jesus has sent you preachers, so also has he sent you to bear witness about him in your lives, to bear witness to his death and his resurrection life. The Holy Spirit in us is what empowers and enables us to share in this very same action that Jesus granted to his apostles. To forgive sins. You have the power to forgive sins. And I know that might upset some heavenly clerical types. But the power and the authority to forgive sins is God's. And he grants it to everyone who has received the Holy Spirit. You come to the font, maybe even this one, and you've received the Holy Spirit. Not publicly in the case of the, whole, the office of ministry to preach this, but to meet every single person with these words of life. Everyone personally, the words of forgiveness are on your lips. You have the words of eternal life from him. That is the name of Jesus on your lips. To share with your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, and the like. In fact, when you first heard about Jesus, I bet you dollars to donuts, it was probably from a member of your family. You are loved by God beyond measure. A priceless treasure bought with the blood of Christ to be his very own in his kingdom forever. And you are also sent sent with the message that Jesus is your Lord and your God, the salvation of the world sent to save all of us and to make all of us new. And it doesn't matter if those words are on your lips when you're out in the tractor, driving down the road, or sitting with your grandkids. The words of Jesus are on your lips, and they bring life wherever they go, wherever he goes. Amen.